What I'm really going to do today is give us an introduction to the book of 1 Samuel and take us up to the point at which David is anointed king, which means looking at some of the themes in the first half of the book. So I'm, gonna, I'm actually going to change the plan a little bit and read um, the Song of Hannah, okay, as our scripture for today. And if we have time, I'll, I'll, we'll look at when Samuel goes to anoint David in chapter 16. But I'm going to just read the first part of chapter 2, okay? Then Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord my horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. Do not keep talking so proudly or let your mouth speak such arrogance. For the Lord is a God who knows, and by him deeds are weighed. The bows of the warriors are broken, but those who stumbled are armed with strength. Those who were full hire themselves out for food, but those who were hungry are hungry no more. She who was barren has borne seven children, but she who has had many sons pines away. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful servants, but the wicked will be silenced in a place of darkness. It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. The Most High will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, but the boy ministered before the Lord under Eli the priest. And that refers to Samuel. So, to understand the story of David, we have to look at the bigger picture of what's going on in this, in this first book of uh, Samuel. And, um, you know, I'm from an evangelical and, a, bit, and a, a charismatic background, and my experience over the years is whenever we got into the Old Testament, it would always be a character study. Now, we are doing a character study, but this is going to be a character study with a difference. Um, now, the character studies that I heard in the past preached were all a little bit moralistic. In other words, you know, be like David, don't be like Saul kind of thing. Okay, but once you get into the text, you realize that this can break down with someone like David because David is more complex than that. David is good, but David also does some pretty bad things. And so the story of David defies a kind of moralistic good guy, bad guy analysis. Um, and if we, if, we, if we insist on doing that, um, we're going to miss out on what God might be communicating to, uh, uh, to us in this whole book of Scripture. So what we often don't do is we don't place these characters, um, their successes and their failures, in the context of the bigger picture. Um, and the thing about David is because the story arc is, is basically epic. Um, it's about as epic as it gets with David. Um, that, you know, we are drawn to what he did well and what um, other people did badly. And there's tons and tons of sermons in going over that material. You know, David defeated Goliath, an act of pure faith and courage. He refused to revenge himself on Saul, choosing instead for God to wait for God to give him the kingdom. 
Um, he delivered Israel from her enemies in a way that had not been done before. And he created a stronger and more glorious kingdom um, that was only eclipsed by that of Solomon, his son, who came after him. But David, he also, he let loose a destructive passion, committed adultery. Um, he was involved in conspiracy to murder. Um, he had at least eight wives, possibly concubines as well. Um, and, uh, you know, David was the one who said, how I love your law, and yet the law specifically forbade kings to have many wives. And his whole family situation was kind of off the scale dysfunctional. So all of this is instructive for us. Um, we're called to be like David, and yet on the other hand, we don't want to wind up like David at the end either. Um, so we're not gonna, we're not, we're gonna try not to take a moralistic perspective on the story. We're gonna try and look at the bigger picture and then try to understand David in that. So the story really of David um, begins with a woman who can't have a baby. And the book of 1 Samuel begins with Hannah. Okay, Hannah is the much-loved wife of Elkanah, and she's having to endure the taunts of her rival, um, Elkanah's other wife, Penina. Hannah is barren, she can't have a baby, and the stigma and the anguish are very great, and she's in, she's in pain, she's suffering. Um, but the, the first chapters of 1 Samuel tell us that this personal story of a woman is taking place in the context of a, a society that is kind of in a religious and social crisis. The leadership is corrupt. The people, as usual, have gone after idols. Um, the whole worship system introduced by Moses is breaking down, and it's about to get much worse. The Philistines, their enemies, and their neighbors are closing in. Um, but in the midst of all of this, God wants us to focus on Hannah. Um, and it, it doesn't just focus on Hannah. Hannah is the story, okay, the beginning. Hannah prays to the Lord, and the Lord hears her. And when she realizes that, she, she's that, when she realizes that she's conceived a baby, she sings this famous song that we just looked at. And I want to um, encourage you to go uh, later, get your Bibles out at home, and compare the song of Hannah with the Magnificat, the song of Mary in Luke chapter 1. Okay? That, that, that's a fascinating study to compare these two things because they're very, very similar. Um, both songs sing of the same thing. Hannah recognizes that when, when a barren woman conceives that this is a, a cosmic signal that God is about to act. So whenever God is about to do something, there's always a block to that thing, okay? And this is something that as we seek to grow God's kingdom and to grow our church in Bury, we need to bear this in mind. Whenever we begin in earnest to seek God, often God will place an obstacle in front of us. Think about Abraham and Sarah. They couldn't have a baby. God promised them a child, and yet he blocked that child for more than 20 years. Same thing happened with Rebecca and Rachel. The same thing happened with Samson's mother. Same thing happened with Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist. Each woman was barren to begin with. Actually, we can apply the same thing to Mary. She wasn't barren, but a virgin conceiving is taking the barrenness kind of metaphor to the next level. So the barren woman 
being with child is a massive Bible metaphor. And it is the sign that something is about to happen. Um, And so both Hannah and Mary in their songs, they declare the upending of the social order. And the humbling of the wicked and the lifting up of the poor and the oppressed. The Lord's enemies and the oppressors of his people are about to be overthrown. So, how does that sound to us as Christians who know the New Testament? Well, I think that Hannah is announcing the kingdom of God. Just in the same way that Mary, at the very beginning in her song, she's announcing the changes that the kingdom will bring. And so we can say that the book of 1 Samuel begins with this announcement of the kingdom of God. Now, a kingdom needs a king. And so the book of 1 Samuel concerns this question of who is going to be king. And more specifically, who is the true and rightful king? And the question of who's going to be king is not just a local political question that's related to Israel. There's a cosmic dimension to this, and we need to bear this in mind as as the background or the bigger picture, the invisible picture, if you like. So when Samuel is conceived, things are bad, but they're going to get worse, as I just said. Uh, And the reason for this is that this is a hard word for me to share in a way, but when God, before God deals with the world, he has to deal with his people. Um, and, and, you know, Peter says that judgment begins with the house of God. And so when we begin to earnestly seek God for change in the world around us, we shouldn't be surprised if God turns the lens on us first, that there are things that we might have to get right with God about and things that we might have to change before God changes people outside. Okay, and sometimes that can mean pain and discomfort for us and sacrifice. So because Samuel's birth was miraculous, Hannah dedicates him to the Lord and he goes to live in the temple or the tabernacle with Eli, the priest, and he's very young. Says that after he was weaned, which probably means back then he was four or five years old, very small to go away and live away from his mother. Um, Hannah's dedication of Samuel to the Lord meant that he was a Nazarite, I don't know if any of you have heard of that from the Old Testament. The Nazarite vow from Numbers was a vow that a man or a woman could take for a period of time, which would mean that they were especially devoted to the Lord for that time. And during that time of the vow, they were not allowed to drink alcohol or even eat grapes. They couldn't cut their hair and they were not allowed to become unclean for any reason. They weren't allowed to touch a dead body, for example. And there are three people in the Bible who were permanent Nazarites. Samson, Samuel, and John the Baptist. And each one was either called, in the case of Samuel, to sort of engage in a kind of holy war, or, in the case of Samuel and John the Baptist, to be a harbinger or a messenger of a kind of extra special kind. Um, So Eli, at this point, is the priest, and he's blind. We're told that he's blind. But he's not just blind physically. He's actually spiritually blind. He's lost control of his family. His sons, who are also priests, are committing terrible sin and crime. And Eli is not able to change anything. And as a result of this, God speaks to Samuel. And we all know the story. We've all read the kids' books with little Samuel on a sleeping bag on the floor. 
you know. Um, God speaks to the boy and tells him what he's about to do. And just going back to that theme of judgment starting at the house of God, God doesn't tell Samuel about everything, the political situation. He tells him what he's going to do to Eli and Eli's family. And this is obviously a very hard word. Um, Again, I just want to come back to this point. If we think that Britain is sort of changing in a way that we don't like, it's not because of the non-Christians. Okay? It's not their fault. What, what, what do they know? It's, we have to take a look in the mirror and we have to ask God to change us. God always holds believers responsible before he holds non-believers responsible. So how bad things get is illustrated by the way that the leaders in their desperation, they think that they can manipulate God. They're very afraid of the Philistines. And I'm just explaining how things get worse after Samuel is called. Um, They think, so what they do is they they bring up the Ark of the Covenant into the front line because they think that they can use the Ark as a weapon. Um, But that doesn't work with God. Okay, and he lets the ark be captured. Um, have anybody, has anyone seen Raiders of the Lost Ark? Okay, it's a bit old now. But I, I looked it up last night um, just to check some details of it. And if you remember the plot, the whole premise of the story is that the ark can be used as a weapon. And so the Americans hear that the Germans are looking for, is before the Second World War, are looking for the ark and may have found it. And the conversation between Indiana Jones and the army intelligence guys is about, oh, what will they be able to do if they get hold of the Ark? You know, they'll have the ultimate weapon. Um, And uh, I think even back then when I first saw the film, I remember thinking, you know, don't tell them what the, the truth is because, you know, we know from the story that this is an impossibility, that um, it's impossible to, to manipulate God in this way. God is not mocked like that. Um, and, and if you look back at the song of Hannah, um, what, does he, what does she say? Um, it is not by strength that one prevails. In other words, we don't look to human strength or we don't look to gadgets or technology or even religious rituals to save us. God is the one who saves us. It's a personal relationship. We have to be in fellowship with God. Um, there's no way to manipulate God with rituals. So the Israelites try that, and the ark is captured. And at this point, Eli, of course, he's so shocked and shamed that he falls off his chair and dies. Meanwhile, the Philistines take the ark and they put it into Dagon's temple. Dagon is their god. Now, the Philistines, as good pagans, they're thinking in terms of local and geographical gods, Okay, God, there's lots of gods, everybody has a god, and behind the battles there's this cosmic battle where gods fight, and who's ever got, whoever wins, their god is the best god, and they think that this is the way it works. So they, they put the ark into Dagon's temple um, because Dagon has defeated Yahweh, right? However, the next morning, Dagon is lying in an attitude of worship in front of the ark, the statue of the god, and they think, oh, you know, that's random. What happened there? Let's put Dagon back up. Okay? It's how gracious God is, you know. He always gives people another chance. Next morning, second day, D- 
They go into the temple and Dagon is there and his head and his arms are broken off. And Dagon figuratively has suffered the head wound promised in Genesis 3 to the serpent, you know, that the the seed of the woman is going to crush your head. Okay? David is also going to crush the serpent's head when Goliath appears dressed, you know, in scale-like armor, okay, representing a kind of a serpent. Um, So after the ark gets sent back, the Philistines, they, they, they wise up, they send the ark back. And after that period, there's a period of quiet after that. And Samuel grows up, he reaches maturity, and he begins to lead and judge Israel. And at a place called Mizpah, he calls the people to renew, he calls everybody together to renew the covenant. Okay? And he says to them, put away your idols. We're going to dedicate ourselves to God. We're going to renew the nation and the covenant. And while they're repenting and worshipping and sacrificing, the Philistines come up and start to attack. And God intervenes miraculously with thunder. And all the Israelite army has to do is sort of run after them. But God does the heavy lifting. Okay, it's a miraculous sign. So things appear to be back to normal. But they're not back to normal. Because the worship system is now completely broken. The ark is in one place and the tabernacle is actually in another place. And the ark is never put back into the tabernacle. Um, actually, it doesn't get, they don't get reunited for another hundred years until Solomon builds the temple. And, and, and he brings the ark into the temple. Um, and uh, you remember when the ark was captured, uh, Eli's daughter-in-law gave birth. She was dying. She gave birth and she named the boy that was born before she died Ichabod or Ichabod, which means the glory has departed. So the glory doesn't return until Solomon puts the ark back into the temple. And then it says in First Kings that the glory descended on the temple. So there's this hundred or more than a hundred year period where the glory has departed and yet life goes on. Does that mean that God is not with the people? No, it doesn't. It just means that something else is happening. So another way for us to think about this, this period of transition, is to return to that theme of the barren woman. Okay? Things need to change and God is moving to bring about change but things haven't fully changed yet. So I don't know if any of you have heard of that phrase that people often use about the kingdom of God, that the kingdom of God is now, but not yet. Meaning that the kingdom arrived with Jesus, but we still live in a time where we're hard-pressed, where things don't go the way we want, where people still die, people still get sick. Um, God doesn't appear to answer all our prayers. Um, life can be difficult for many people. So we're, we know that the kingdom of, of God has begun and it has started to grow, but it hasn't arrived in its fullness yet. And so I'm suggesting that this period between Samuel, Samuel is the last of the judges, and the monarchy, this is a period of transition, okay? Where God is doing something different. He's, he's changing things. He's healing and restoring but there's also a lot of work to be done in that period so what happens after Mizpah is that the Philistines for a while are are 
are um, subdued. And Samuel's leadership appears to be going really well. But the people, being fickle, now, now they've got a little bit of prosperity back, they say, give us a king. And, and this, um, this really upsets Samuel, okay, that they would do this. Now, to ask for a king was not necessarily a bad thing. In the law, in Deuteronomy, there were rules for kings. So that implies that God made provision for an eventual king. But apparently there's a problem in the way that the people are asking for a king. Um, the people are asking for a king who will judge us like all the nations. And the Lord says to Samuel, don't be upset. It's not, you're not the problem. I'm the problem. They've rejected me, not you. So why would, why would asking for a king be a rejection of God if God had always planned for them to have a king? Well, the problem was they wanted a king who would be like those other kings of the nations. And this was the very thing that Israel was not supposed to be. Israel was supposed to be different from the nations. They were supposed to be a nation that was set apart to portray a different kind of reality, a completely different, healed and restored humanity is what they were supposed to be. And so when they were saying, give us a king like everyone else, what they were saying is that really we're tired of being God's people. We're tired of being Israel. Um, and that is why God says to Samuel, look, they've rejected me, they haven't rejected you. So Samuel tells them in chapter eight, he says, this is what, since you've asked for this king, this is what the king's gonna be like. He's gonna be an oppressor. He's gonna tax you heavily and he's going to recruit your children into his state. Um, and Samuel says, basically, and you're going to cry out because of your king. You're going to regret it, and the Lord's not going to listen to you when you do that. Okay? That's kind of weird, isn't it? Why would that happen? So the lead-up to Saul being chosen as king is that Samuel, Samuel's judgeship, if you like, was working out. Um, and even though the law of God had provided for a king, somehow the people asking for a king, the way they did it and what was in their hearts was displeasing to God. Okay? Now, at this point, it's tempting for me to go on a tangent and talk about Saul. Um, Simon is going to talk about Saul in a couple of weeks. Um, I don't want to get into all of that. But one thing I want to just say is that where Saul fits into the puzzle of what God is doing and how he's revealing himself in this story is that in order for him to sort of reveal what a true king is like and we can even say we can look beyond David to Jesus in this regard there has to be a contrast set up with what a king is not okay the people have asked for a king like the nations and God is going to give them somewhat a king like the kings of the nations and that is to set up a contrast with what God is going to do later. So that's how we might make sense of Saul. If we look at the way Saul sinned in this period before David was anointed, we can see that Saul was basically an insecure man. He was impatient. He was unwise. And actually his authoritarianism grew as he went on. And his authoritarianism stemmed from his lack of confidence and trust in the Lord. He didn't trust others. He wound up even not trusting Jonathan by the end. He had to control people to make sure what they did, that they did what he wanted them to do. So the very thing that David was able to do 
which was to wait until Saul was dead before he became king and resist that temptation to take matters into his own hands and take what was available but which was forbidden. Okay, that also reminds us of, of Adam and Eve reaching out and taking what was possible to take but which was wrong to take. David faces that same temptation many times and I guess in subsequent weeks we'll get into that. So even though everybody thought David had the right to kill Saul, he, he didn't. But Saul was not able to, um, he was not able to overcome his chronic insecurity and his impatience. So at Michmash, a place called Michmash, Saul makes two mistakes. He sees the people, because, Saul has, because Samuel hasn't turned up to do the sacrifice, he sees his army starting to drift away. And um, the passage tells us that he had 600 men. Now, if you remember Gideon, Gideon had only 300. Okay, so Saul should know that 300 is enough and 600 is plenty. But he, he chickens out and he, he loses patience and he, he makes the sacrifice himself because he thinks it's the sacrifice. It's the sacrifice that will that will be the thing that protects them. Just like the army thought it was the ark rather than God himself that would protect them. Saul was trusting in the sacrifice rather than in the God to whom the sacrifice was made. He also made this foolish vow that the men were not allowed to eat during the, during the battle. Jonathan was the one who ate, he didn't know. And he says afterwards, he basically says, that was a bad decision, Dad. If the men had been allowed to eat, we would have won the battle. We would have won an even greater victory. Um, Saul's final sort of mess up concerns the Amalekites. Um, the Amalekites are kind of interesting because they were, they were the first people to attack Israel when they came out of Egypt. And um, they, they seem to have a kind of next level pathological hatred of Israel. And actually, if you look at the book of Esther, um, Haman, who tries to kill Mordecai, it says that he was a, an Amalekite, he was a descendant of Agag. So the Amalekites are kind of the ultimate bad guys in the Bible. Um, and that is why God gave this very severe command concerning them. But Saul, again, he wants to change what God has said. Um, he wants to modify God's word and just do part of what uh, God told him to do. Um, so adding all of these things up, we get an insecure leader who was mistrustful. He, he trusted in numbers. Um, he trusted in, you know... He trusted in everything other than God himself. Um, Saul is not able to rejoice in the victories and successes of others. A leader like that will see someone else's success not as something to be rejoiced over, but as a threat to his own authority. So at the end of this um, sort of problem and this mess up against the Amalekites, the word of the Lord came to Samuel and says, I regret that I made Saul king. And then we get to chapter 16 of 1 Samuel, where Samuel is kind of depressed about what's happened, and the Lord says to him, stop it. Uh, how long are you going to mope about over Saul? Let's go and see what's going to happen next. And so he sends him to Jesse's house. Um, and the whole theme of chapter 16 
Um, how are we doing for time? Okay, I won't read it. Okay, but you can read it um, when you get home if you're interested. But chapter 16, we, we know it very well, where Samuel goes to Jesse's house and each of the boys is brought in before Samuel. And Samuel looks at each one of them and each one of them is an impressive person and Samuel says, surely this is the one that the Lord has anointed. Um, but he gets through, I think, six or five sons and he says is there not another one there, there must be another one and uh, David isn't there because he's too small and there's a sense also in the next chapter um, that David doesn't have much credibility with his own family the way his brothers treat him in chapter 17 is very interesting um, it goes beyond the banter in a family that usually is or often can be directed at the youngest person um, so David has to sort of overcome his own family. And even, at this, even on this day when Samuel comes, you know, they didn't, it's as if they didn't really regard him as important. He was out with the sheep. Um, the problem of appearances is, very, is, is a big problem for us. Saul had been a very impressive looking individual. He was taller and probably better looking than everyone in Israel. Samuel said at the time, there is no one like him in Israel. Um, and that can be a problem um, in business and politics, sometimes in the church, is that we often want someone to lead who's like a better version of ourselves. Um, and that can be based on very superficial, surface-level um, qualities, how people look and how they talk. Um, I think in an extreme way, we often want a leader to be... Um, Someone who makes us look good. Someone whose glory reflects on us. But this is not really the way God raises up leaders and it's not how he, um, how he wants leadership to operate. And I think this is the reason why God had allowed Saul to be king before David. The people to know, needed to know what the king was not like and, what the, and therefore what the true king would be like. So God looks at the heart. This is the message that God taught Samuel when he went to see Jesse's sons um, God sometimes hides from us what he's saying by the messengers and the way the message comes and this is something we have to be very careful about this is very clear in the gospels Jesus was not what the religious leaders were looking for or expecting he wasn't what they wanted him to be so this tells us that they weren't really looking to God for guidance what they were actually looking at was themselves and their own idea of what they needed or wanted. And it actually tells us how limited their own idea of the kingdom of God was all about. You know, think about John the Baptist. To be honest, he must have looked a right state. Um, dressed in skins, eating insects. I mean, how often did he take a shower? I mean, really. Um, how much water was there in the, in the wilderness? Um, and then Jesus, when the Pharisees tried to trap him by saying, on what authority are you doing? Who gave you the authority to do these things? Jesus answers with a question. He says, okay, where was John's baptism from? Was it from heaven or from men? And the Pharisees are like, oh, what are we going to do? If we say it's from heaven, he'll say, why didn't you believe him? So they admitted it. They didn't believe him. They didn't recognize John the Baptist. He wasn't credible to them. He, he wasn't what they wanted, so they dismissed him. And yet Jesus says, up until now, there has been nobody greater than John the Baptist. 
So a mark of maturity for us is will, be, will we recognize what God is speaking? Or, sorry, will we recognize what God is saying in the person saying it? And it might be that God speaks to us in a, from a very unlikely source. I have a friend who, uh, who I think is um, something of a real prophet. He has a message for the church, but he has a very broad Yorkshire accent. And people just dismiss him. The moment he opens his mouth, people are like, Ugh. you know, they, they, they can't hear what God might be saying from someone who's not sophisticated or middle class or highly educated. So this is something for us to be aware of. Um, God chose David because he knew what was in David. And we know from the story we know from the rest of the story how God had been preparing David, but apparently nobody, not even his own family, was aware of how God had been preparing him. Um, not only was David beating up bears and lions in the wilderness, he was also honing his worship skills. He was probably playing his little guitar, his little tiny lute or whatever he had, endlessly by himself under the stars, you know, leading a lonely, and you know, being a shepherd in those days was very difficult. Very physically demanding, lonely, dangerous. David learned to trust God in a secret place where nobody could see. Um, so David's main concern was to glorify God and to worship him, and God saw that. No one else saw it. So this is what we have to look for in leaderships, leadership, and this is what we have to cultivate in ourselves. We have to cultivate a desire to serve God uh, which means glorifying, worshipping and obeying God to the best of our ability. So just to wrap up, I think this first half of the book introduces what God is going to do in the rest of the book. Um, I think it concerns the growth of the kingdom of God. And that growth under David and then Solomon involved increasing the influence of, of Israel and therefore the word of God into the surrounding nations. Um, David and Solomon were to expand Israel, but their influence was not to be like the influence of the pagan nations, which were just bent on conquering and killing everybody else. The goal was much more important of that, and I think the goal is, is in Isaiah, where it says, um, I had this passage and then I deleted it because I thought it was too much, but it's in, it's in the, uh, Isaiah 2, and it's also in Micah as well, I think, or Malachi. Um, you know, that the, na that the law will go out of Zion and the nations will come to the mountain of the Lord. Now, for some people, that's a sort of millennial fulfillment, but we can also see it applied here, that God was wanting Israel to move into a sort of position of sort of higher prominence among the nations, that the, that the good news of the kingdom would spread out a bit more. Um, Samuel was the prophet who paved the way for this new phase of the kingdom, a bit like John the Baptist. Saul was the king who showed the people what the king was not supposed to be like. And David is the true king who puts God first. But David's faults that we will see about, and we will examine in future weeks, his mistakes and his outright sin point us to the ultimate king. Because although David is the king who wants to put God first, David is still human and he's still subject to temptation and he's still compromised by sin. And so even David's failures, just in the way that Saul's failures point us to David, David's failures are going to point us to Jesus. Okay?
um, the, the ultimate king whose grace and judgment are perfect.